The Justice Department confirmed Monday. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions. But first, an inside look at the country's overwhelmed immigration court system. The current backlog is at a record high, more than 600,000 cases pending. You are plans to set a quota uh, of 700 cases per year. It was year. setting case quotas for immigration judges. And we do intend to implement performance measures, numeric performance measures. So this is a compassionate country, but we must recognize that our general system is being terribly abused. Well, on that note, hello and welcome. That was Jeff Sessions announcing some new regulations for the immigration courts. This episode, I want to understand what the effects of some of those regulations might be by looking at a very similar set of guidelines proposed by Attorney General John Ashcroft in 2002 to the Board of Immigration Appeals, a move that has since been infamously named the Ashcroft Purge. Well, Marika, I think that Ashcroft's actions and the procedures he enacted actually resulted in less deliberation, uh, reduced fairness, and less due process at the Board of Immigration Appeals. And unhappily, in my view, uh, Sessions appears determined to do the same thing to the immigration courts. So this time it's probably going to be worse because there are almost 700,000 pending cases, many more uh, than there were during Ashcroft's tenure. In the Ashcroft purge, John Ashcroft punished dissent, valued quick decisions, and ended up spending more money and time while denying asylum to many who had a fair claim. Right now, Sessions is rushing judges to make 700 decisions a year. He's also grading judges on whether their decisions are reversed or not by the Board of Immigration Appeals. 700 decisions could be too many for some judges, uh, perhaps. Uh, too few for other judges. I don't think you can quantify due process like that. But let's go over a few more points uh, that show how insidious uh, these production quotas can be. Yeah, actually, let's go through the points one by one. Well, when Sessions proposes to grade judges on appellate and reversals and remands, he's really requiring uh, a very high percentage of contemporaneous oral decisions, which are rendered uh, right at the time of the hearing or within a few days thereafter. And this method of decision-making restricts a judge's ability to do research, review records, uh, and to prepare the careful, high-quality written decisions that many of the courts of appeals uh, expect. Recently, my good friend and colleague, uh, Carol King, who recently retired from the immigration court in San Francisco, pointed out to me that by requiring immigration judges to render almost all decisions at the hearing or within a few days of the hearing, Sessions is really forcing the judges to use the widely discredited contemporaneous oral decision format. Oral decisions, because the manner in which they're done and prepared, commonly have factual and citation errors, and they also all too often have grammatical spelling and punctuation errors caused by the totally unjudicial format. As an appellate judge at the BIA, I found that these oral decisions were painful to review, and consequently, they could sometimes be unduly time-consuming. Are there other problems caused by the contemporaneous oral decision format? Well, the board's decisions in the most complicated cases 
go to Court of Appeals judges who are, of course, uh, independent uh, Article Three judges who aren't uh, responsible for carrying out the administration's uh, policies and normally aren't working under the types of extreme caseloads that immigration judges and board members are. And when the Court of Appeals judges pick up immigration decisions, they look uh, more like high school work than the work of uh, uh, an important uh, federal judge making uh, life-determining decisions. Um, <clears throat> often the circuit courts, who are more than adequately staffed with uh, judicial law clerks, find errors in the factual and legal analysis done by the immigration judge, which have been summarily affirmed and passed on uh, by the board. Now, I have some idea about this because our oldest son uh, was a law clerk for a U.S. district judge for two years, and I know from talking to him that when they prepared a decision that was going to the appellate court, the judge personally spent many hours on the case uh, going over it with the law clerk so that it was a perfect product. And you can imagine the contrast when somebody picks up an immigration court decision that looks like it was much less carefully prepared, yet the issue in the immigration judge opinion may well be a life or death asylum claim. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, nobody disputes, Marika, that there is a backlog, and of course the backlog uh, has to be addressed over time. But I think the real for reforms that could be undertaken that would start with improving quality, uh, bogus uh, quick fixes, pedal faster uh, solutions that are going to magically eliminate the backlog have been tried before, and in my time in government, they always fail. Oh, oh, they've been tried before? Wait, have production quotas been tried before? Well, not exactly, but uh, when Ashcroft tried to amp up streamlining, he was actually building on a process that I had started when I was born. You tried to. streamlining cases? Yeah, let me take you back a couple decades and explain what happened when Ashcroft came into power. Okay, but first, let me give a little bit of a background. After Bush won in 2000, he appointed John Ashcroft to the Attorney General position. Ashcroft hired Chris Kobach, who we know as the King of Voter Suppression and Trump's Vice Chairman of the Commission on Election Integrity. Well, Chris actually started his long road of enacting racist policies under Ashcroft. Fun fact, I recently found out it was during this time that Kobach had created a memo seeking to allow random stop and checks for papers. This memo kept growing like a metastatic tumor and it eventually became SB 1070, the highly criticized Arizona paper please bill. Yeah, I mean, Kobach's done a lot of things that uh, just so happened to diminish uh, immigrants and their access to fair treatment under law. He and Ashcroft had this theory of self-deportation, also known as enforcement by attrition. And as you probably know, Kobach eventually became the immigration advisor to the Mitt Romney campaign. 
and uh, that was one of the campaign themes was self-deportation. And the concept of self-deportation is if you make things difficult and unpleasant enough for uh, migrants, they'll leave. And I can't say this for sure, but I'm, uh, I'm pretty certain that it was uh, Kobach who gave Ashcroft most of his specific ideas about the immigration courts. Uh, when Ashcroft became attorney general, he wasn't generally known as uh, an immigration guru and an immigration court aficionado, but the regulations he came up with were quite specific and pointed. So I think the person most likely to have that type of technical knowledge on his staff was Chris Kobach. Kobach. Yeah, I know Ashcroft wanted to speed up the uh, appeals process because he thought most people were deportable and that they were uh, gaming the system, using their time on appeal uh, just to build a better case or to extend their stay in the United States. Well, abusing America's generosity and taking advantage of the system is also how Jeff Sessions justifies quotas. Yeah, it's not too surprising. Uh, Restrictionists and anti-immigrant advocates uh, use this line quite a bit. I think there's a general feeling that the immigration appellate system can be manipulated to delay final decisions. Ashcroft published several regulations, all aimed at speeding up the board's process, which he felt was the nexus of time lagging, and created opportunities for immigrants to gain the system and stay in the country longer. Ashcroft set time limits on board decisions, severely limited the number of embanked decisions, and expanded the streamlining process, which is where one judge would summarily affirm an immigration judge's decision, circumventing the need for a three-member panel or even a written decision by a board member. Now, Paul talked about this at the beginning of our podcast today, but Often, these immigration judge decisions being affirmed weren't edited for content or even grammar, which caused embarrassment when the decisions were sent to the Court of Appeals, where they were often roasted in published opinions. Ashcroft also believed the backlog, which had been growing problems since the mid-90s and now consisted of 10,000 cases waiting for a scheduling date, was a procedural problem, and it was the erroneous thinking of past administrations that had labeled it a personnel problem. To help correct this error, Ashcroft reduced the board from 19 members down to 12. During this time, there was a notable shift in board decisions. They became more conservative, and many members opted for stricter definitions of asylum. Many have noted that these decisions follow the line of the Bush administration rather than past precedent or even how those same BIA judges have been ruling before. The system should not be pretzeling itself up to accommodate the enforcement views of each new administration. Although the board deciding on 55,000 cases in the first six months lessened the backlog, something else actually happened too. A higher number of appeals went to the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, and those courts began issuing scathing criticisms of the immigration courts and returning the cases to the immigration courts for redos, which just ended up increasing the backlog and now expanded it to two different court systems. Overall, these appeals drove up the time and resources spent by immigration litigators and time spent on each case. Well, I think that Ashcroft actually decreased deliberation and uh, reduced fairness and due process in the immigration courts for migrants uh, without actually achieving his claimed goal of making the system more efficient.
So why is there this huge obsession with streamlining? Why target the board to speed up the immigration process? Paul, when Ashcroft came into power, you went from chairman of the Board of Immigration Appeals to board member to then being moved into the Arlington Immigration Courts as a senior immigration judge. You also weren't the only board member who was shuffled out. I think what I really want to understand is exactly what was going on between the board members and Ashcroft. Well, Marika, it wasn't long after uh, Ashcroft took over that I was told by the then director, uh, the late Kevin Rooney, the director of Eeyore, that Ashcroft wanted me to step down as chairman and wanted to make some changes. As chairman, I'd received outstanding ratings and performance-based management bonuses uh, from the DOGA each year. I was chair, uh, but I was told by Kevin that uh, Ashcroft wanted to do things differently. Kevin was a friend, and I think that maybe Eric Holder uh, was still the acting deputy attorney general, so they made a board position and shoved me into it. Uh, in other words, they helped engineer a soft landing for me. Now, I was upset, but uh, ultimately, I couldn't have worked in a senior management position for folks who didn't want me. And I certainly didn't want to be assigned to be a hall walker in the Department of Justice. Uh, a hall walker is essentially a senior executive with a fancy title, but few, if any, meaningful duties. And I also thought that uh, in an effort to uh, remove me if I resisted, that Ashcroft uh, might damage the board. Why stay at all? Why not just leave? Well, it was a little early in my career for me to take retirement. I would have had to take a, an early retirement, and that would have meant uh, severe uh, penalties on my uh, pension. I could have gone into private practice, but I'd been in private practice uh, just before I was appointed to be chairman, so it was sort of been there, done that. Uh, plus, I had a long history and a good track record of government service. I'd been in immigration a really long time, and I had expertise that I thought would be useful. I, I liked the work, and I, I guess, wrongfully figured that the uh, board would need some uh, loyal opposition, uh, even in the new administration. So I stayed on as a board member. But then Ashcroft announced he was dissatisfied with the board as a whole. Uh, this is a pretty hard hit for my colleagues. I was told that the, my predecessor as chairman had the attitude, what's best for the board is for everyone in government to forget it exists until it comes time to get the paycheck. Most of the board members at that time were career government officials, and if there was one thing they disliked, it was getting noticed, particularly in a controversial or potentially career-threatening manner. Ashcroft announced his proposed regulations and that he was cutting down on the board members, and the situation turned very stressful very fast. From about maybe the spring of 2001 to the spring of 2003, it was sort of like musical chairs where no one knew who was going to stay, uh, who was going to go, and nobody really knew what the criteria were for keeping the job. Uh, the board was actually located in a 
high-rise building known as a tower, and people like Kevin were physically moving their offices to other floors, uh, I think, to avoid us. It was sort of like being in the twilight zone. Because? Well, the board members were now sort of like radioactive lepers, and I think... Uh, at this time, voting patterns shifted even more in favor of the government. I mean, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like the board uh, was issuing precedent decisions in favor of the immigrants' position. The INS uh, won virtually every uh, precedent case. However, there was a group of us who were uh, concerned about the way the law was being interpreted and about immigrants' rights who consistently dissented from uh, the majority positions and who insisted on uh, being heard and challenging some of the majority suppositions. But I think most board members got the message that if you wanted to protect your job, that rejecting the INS position or dissenting in favor uh, of the immigrant and in favor of due process, particularly in any kind of published decision, uh, wasn't such a good idea. Yeah, it was, it was terribly stressful because it's a difficult job in the first place, and then when you feel you not only don't have uh, support from above, but you're under uh, attack by the individual or the group that should be uh, defending you, the Department of Justice, then that makes the job uh, extremely unpleasant. The board had already become a very insular body, and during this time we're pushed into being even more insular. Uh, nobody was allowed to speak publicly or to attend uh, continuing uh, legal education or bar events. I, I think one of the ultimate things is when your Ashcroft had the board members disinvited from the annual conference of the immigration judges, which we usually attended to uh, make presentations to the immigration judges and to mingle with the immigration judges. So it was a, a, a pretty demeaning experience. Sounds petty. Uh, incredibly petty. As I said, it's like being in the twilight zone. And amazingly, we were never really actually interviewed uh, for the board member job by Ashcroft or anybody on his staff. So it was complete guesswork to decide who'd stay on the board. I think I probably wasted a load of time uh, making guesses. Okay, if he's getting rid of people based on seniority, this is how I'd rank. If he's getting rid of people based on seniority in government, seniority on the board, number of decisions made, number of times he sided with the dissent, number of times you approved a stay. Well, at some point it became fairly obvious. Uh, some board members took the hint early on. It wasn't a secret that uh, John Ashcroft uh, believed immigrants were taking advantage of America's a great gift of generosity. Okay, well, I think everybody knew uh, that he didn't like Lori. That's uh, Judge Lori Rosenberg, a board member uh, who irritated some of the other board members in the past. 
She sometimes took a long time writing her dissent, and she dissented quite often. When we did en banc decisions with all of us sitting, this led to lots of complaints from the other members who claimed Lori was not just dissenting, uh, but rather she was preparing a blueprint for how to challenge board precedents in court and in the future. And I think she also tended to criticize the board and particular board members' views in her dissent. Uh, I think Lori had once written in one of her uh, opinions that she thought many, if not the majority, of all immigration judge decisions were incorrect. And Ashcroft specifically, I think in the introductory language to the proposed regulations, disagree disagreed, saying again, he thought that most, or if not the majority of immigration cases were essentially frivolous appeals. I think he stated something to the effect that uh, the immigration courts really didn't need a ponderous review system. The board uh, was spending too much time making these decisions. Uh, it was well known he wasn't favorably uh, disposed to uh, immigrants, and he considered them to be, uh, and he he considered that the board members who dissented were uh, wasting time by dissenting. Unfortunately, I think that also included me. Of course, often, sometimes, the majority of the time, Lori had a point. Uh, in fact, I think she was the only board member uh, that I know of ever to be favorably uh, cited by the U.S. Supreme Court in the St. Cyr case. Uh, in a way, Lori reminded me of sort of a liberal version of uh, Justice, the late Justice Antonin Scalia, brilliant, irascible, and uh, willing to be sharply critical of her colleagues in her opinions. Wait, sorry, Ashcroft didn't like a ponderous review system? No, in his mind, deliberation was delay, and it was uh, decreasing efficiency, and I think efficiency here meant uh, removal of immigrants. Do you personally think deliberation was slowing down the appeals process? Well, obviously deliberation takes time. Democracy takes time. Uh, but then again, deliberation and democracy are what are supposed to guarantee fairness. Now, authoritarian regimes uh, don't take time. Uh, but many people, if not the majority of people in those regimes, uh, end up being harmed or even sometimes murdered or tortured in heinous ways. So uh, from that perspective, having to wait uh, for the correct decision to be reached uh, really doesn't seem like a bad trade-off. Wait, sorry, you thought he might be kicking people off of the board based on whether they were conservative or liberal this early on. Well, as I told you before, I think it'd be a mistake to say that there were a lot of people taking liberal votes on the board. The INS prevailed statistically in uh, the vast majority of cases and certainly the vast majority of the published cases. But I do think the votes became more cut and dried. Uh, there used to be a few board members who could potentially be swing votes, and I felt that they uh, began to take a harder line. Uh, 
some board members who basically saw the handwriting on the wall uh, left uh, voluntarily. Uh, one went into management, one took an immigration judge position, another retired. So eventually there were about five of us left who had continued voting the way we'd always done. And we became a very clear uh, little group of dissenters, uh, essentially what I sometimes refer to as the gang of five. And I think others on the board became even more reluctant to join our positions. The discussions we had about cases at the en bancs became, in my view, less intellectual and more uh, just pro forma. In fact, I remember my last en banc, one member who was uh, fairly conservative back when we had a full board uh, was presenting the sole argument against uh, the DHS position, and I remember thinking that uh, if this person is anchoring the uh, liberal end of the board, then the pretense that the board is a representative deliberative body is basically a fiction. At this time, was there an obvious shift in people's voting patterns? Were people who used to vote more liberal, were they suddenly taking a more conservative view? Yeah, Marika, at some point I kind of hit a low point. Uh, Kevin called me on the phone and his voice was kind of shaking and he uh, asked me to come up to his office on the 26th floor. So I figured it couldn't be good and I I sat down and he told me that I, as he put it, didn't make the cut. Uh, he said that they, and I assume by they it meant Ashcroft and his cronies, uh, didn't like my opinions, particularly uh, some of the dissents where I sided with Lori Rosenberg, particularly in published cases. Now, he suggested that I should be able to stay on as an assistant chief immigration judge, which was a more or less administrative position in headquarters. But unfortunately, there wasn't really a vacancy then. So I was sort of a lame duck at the board. Everybody knew that I had been uh, cut, uh, but I was still around, still assigned to a panel. Uh, I grew to hate being in the building where the board was located. I packed up all my things in a pile and, and put them uh, in a corner of my office. And most days I walked across the shopping center to the other towers where the staff attorneys uh, were located and I reviewed and voted the cases basically as they were written and put out by uh, the chief clerk for the board, uh, for the panel. Uh, yeah, it was fairly quiet in that building, so I could be left alone, and I actually spent uh, a lot of time looking out the window. By that time, I was pretty efficient, and I was able to keep uh, uh, more than ahead of the work, and I didn't really have anything, any other work assignments to do. Uh, you know, I thought about going back into private practice, teaching, um, I also did a lot of walking. Walking was good exercise and probably a better use of my time at that point. Uh, and in the tower, uh, it almost seemed like Kevin uh, was sending down uh, somebody 
every week to tell me, well, we're uh, almost there, uh, but there's still a few loose ends to figure out. Just hang in there. Uh, finally, I was uh, really sort of fed up with it all, and I, I went up uh, to Kevin's office to tell him that I wanted to, to be done, that I wanted an another assignment. I, I didn't want to be on the board anymore. I just wanted to be uh, somewhere else. And surprisingly, he actually beat me to the punch and said, well, I have some, some good news for you. You're going over to the Arlington Immigration Court. And I said, well, I didn't even know there was a vacancy there. And he said, well, there is now because the Attorney General said so. Uh, and apparently either Ashcroft or somebody in the department thought it would be uh, best to put me in an adjudicative position uh, rather than having me wandering around in a uh, management job in the tower. Uh, but it was fine with me, and I suppose it uh, gave me a chance to escape the tower and to make a new start. And it was by no means the first time in my lengthy career that I'd had to reinvent myself. Wow, so how did you feel when you were basically asked to step down? Well, and actually it was by no means the first time in my lengthy career that I had to reinvent myself. Oh my god, that sounds so terrible, Paul. I am so sorry it happened that way. But can I ask you, why didn't your colleagues speak up? I mean, no one could actually have been fired from their position, right? And you mentioned musical chairs scenario, so why were people so afraid of losing their board position? Well, Marika, you have to understand uh, government and the bureaucracy. I actually got the soft landing, but I think what people were afraid of was being placed in some uh, makeshift job in government. We called them hall walker jobs, uh, which is when they really want to get rid of somebody, but it's too complicated or they can't justify it. So they give the person an elaborate position, but where they really have nothing or very little to do and hope that eventually uh, they'll retire. Or uh, they can put somebody in a, another job for a few years at the same grade, same pay, and then uh, after three years, it'd be possible uh, to demote the person further and further down until eventually uh, you quit. Now another option, particularly in Eeyore, is to transfer uh, someone to an undesirable location uh, like a detention center in the middle of nowhere. We actually used to have uh, a standing joke uh, that uh, at that time there was an immigration court in El Centro, California, and people used to joke that uh, that person's uh, probably going to end up in El Centro next week. So uh, it wasn't the worst thing. In fact, uh, one of my pals on the board said, uh, uh, Paul, uh, you realize that in many of the countries we work with every day, uh, they'd have taken us out at dawn and shot us in the back of the head. Uh, so what's not to like about another bureaucratic job at the same pay? But people like to be uh, useful and to have meaningful work, so nobody really wants a hall walker job. And I must say that most folks in the bureaucracy, particularly those that have been there for a career, 
uh, are pretty attached to their jobs. Mm, their jobs become their identity. Yeah, they, they really do. And I think that was especially true at the board because of its insular nature. Generally, board members uh, didn't go on from the board to other positions. That, that was generally what we call in government a terminal position where you uh, stayed until you either retired or died. <laughs> or both. <laughs> yeah, I think people uh, like the feeling of security and uh, that they sort of identified with uh, being a board member and, and the job. You know, it was an important job. We were making precedents. We were deciding uh, important cases. So I, I think that people's well self-image was somewhat tied up in their job. So how did you feel when you were basically asked to step down from this job? Well, I was pretty upset at how this originally unfolded. I'd say I was angry, frustrated, bitter. Uh, but actually going to the Arlington court was therapeutic for me. Over in Arlington at the trial court, I'd never, I got to hear cases in person. I found that I liked uh, developing the record as much as uh, reviewing it. I met many, many interesting and passionate people. So it was overall a good position for me. Now I would say at that time that the immigration court as a whole uh, took a pretty big hit. Uh, as you might expect, uh, many of the decisions were rubber stamped by the reduced board and then forwarded to the courts of appeals uh, where they were, as I used to say, not quite ready for prime time. Uh, many of those cases probably should have been sent back to immigration judges rather than pushed forward. Uh, there were a number of cases that got to the Court of Appeals with inappropriate comments by immigration judges, homophobic, racist, uh, or sexist comments. Uh, some of the judges were uh, plainly disrespectful uh, to the immigrants and their lawyers, and it made immigration judges look, if nothing else, unprofessional, and in some cases uh, bigoted or uh, ignorant. So. Unfortunately for the immigration judges at that time, the Court of Appeals particularly started writing some fairly lengthy, specific uh, published opinions in which they took individual judges to task uh, by name. Uh, but somehow, because the board was just rubber stamping the decisions and the actual hearings weren't before the board and a lot of the cases being reviewed, ended up being the immigration judge decisions, the board didn't seem to take uh, the heat, nor did the department. Uh, individual judges seemed to take the brunt of the blame. Now, I'm not saying that immigration judges, uh, that some of them didn't have problems, uh, but it certainly wasn't 100% their fault. This was an ill-thought-out way of streamlining cases and one that actually went far beyond uh, what the board had been contemplating when I was there. Trying to cut costs and increase efficiency actually ended up driving up costs and decreasing overall efficiency because now poorly written decisions were appealed to the federal circuit courts, which means one, money was spent by immigration courts to defend themselves and two, twice the amount of time to come to a final decision because basically there was this whole other round of courts that a case would have to go through. 
the system as a whole uh, got uh, a reputation for shoddy work and poor public service, although I suppose today uh, poor public service would fit in uh, right with the administration's views on what immigration uh, should be. So can we take a second to just summarize the effects of ash class regulations? Okay. Well, the first point I want to make is that almost everyone did believe that some streamlining of board decisions was necessary, including me. I mean, after all, if everything was a three-member or full board opinion, then we would never get on top of the workload because this would have and did at one time include things like motions or uh, visa petition cases, things that were uh, fairly routine and the system really didn't uh, separate very well the routine from the important. Uh, so there was some sort of change necessary. But I think Ashcroft's solution went too far. It killed deliberation altogether. Uh, there have been no government outsiders, uh, people who were hired directly from outside the government uh, since 2000. So essentially during this century, uh, nobody has been hired directly from a job where they represented immigrants or were teaching or had any kind of experience outside the federal government. So eventually you've ended up with a room uh, of people with very similar backgrounds uh, essentially taking the same views, talking to themselves, or the proverbial room full of people talking to themselves. Uh, one of Ashcroft's justification for expanding the use of streamlining was to increase the time spent on important decisions uh, and increase the number of precedent-making decisions. Uh, but when I was chairman, we actually published a larger number of precedents uh, during the time I was there than happened right after the Ashcroft purge, notwithstanding the unwieldy, uh, perhaps unwieldy number of board members. Why do you think the board under Ashcroft issued less precedents? Well, of course, I was gone by then, but I think, and I think most experts assume, uh, that the board was basically afraid to issue precedents. They were afraid that the attorney general might not like the decision uh, because at this time he was also reviewing and often reversing some of the board precedents. So I believe that avoiding anything that Ashcroft or any attorney general might see as not in accordance with the party line was part of the general strategy of staying under the radar screen. Now I think at the end of the day the board isn't just there to act as an assembly line and churn out decisions. It's not the Falls Church Service Center. That's what I sometimes call it. 
Eeyore was supposed to be the world's best administrative tribunal, guaranteeing fairness and due process to all. Instead, we have people basically churning out life or death decisions with little or no deliberation, one-sided discussions, and often limited or defective scholarship. I mean, many of the issues that are being debated in the courts of appeals that are drawing split decisions sometimes from the appellate courts go through the board with, without any dissent or without anybody even arguing the alternative position. Now, when administrations actually encourage judges to go faster and evaluate them on the amount of product rather than on uh, the best practices or the quality uh, of the product, you basically are increasing, uh, encouraging productivity and numbers at the expense of fundamental fairness. Indeed, a very recent uh, independent internal study uh, at Eeyore that just came out uh, recommended that the focus be on improving process, that is, best practices, rather than achieving a particular outcomes such as more final orders of removal. Uh, Ashcroft and now Sessions have flown directly in the face of best practices. You know, in my view, the Bill of Rights uh, wasn't written to protect the rights of uh, DHS or the U.S. government. Uh, it was written to protect individual rights, and that's individual rights of all of us, including immigrants who are in the country, against government intrusion and to guarantee that people would be treated fairly. Due process is here to protect rights of individuals, and I'm afraid in the immigration court system it's largely gone by the board, so to speak.